Hey, it's Miles here. And before the show starts, uh, many of you have been curious about the work that I get to be a part of at, at OnSite. And so I just wanted to give you a glimpse into who we are. OnSite is, is known as a worldwide leader in the personal growth and therapeutic workshop space. We're just fortunate to work with an incredible team that creates life-changing experiences that assist individuals and families and couples into becoming more self-aware, empathetic, compassionate, and, and resilient, and just overall raising our emotional intelligence so that we can become better versions of ourselves and enhance our relationships. So whether you're feeling burnout or life just seems a little out of balance, or whether you're trying to overcome some adverse circumstances that you experienced along the way, we've got some really cool workshops uh, that we offer year round that we'd love for you to learn more about. And we also help stay plugged in and get you resourced for counseling and other great resources in your area as well. If you want to know more about us, check out onsiteworkshops.com or you can find us on our socials at at onsiteworkshops. The single hardest thing in my personal life was this idea of being a mom that traveled a lot and that did things that um, people thought were probably putting me in harm's way, although I, I would reject that or say it's extremely relative to those that we worked with. And so I took, I took some heat on that. And it's interesting because a lot of times I can take heat and if I know it's not true, right, I can just sort of reject it and move forward. I think being a mother is so, it's such an incredibly vulnerable responsibility. And so you actually just are going to be a little insecure about it all the time. Hey guys, I'm Miles. And I'm Ruthie. And welcome to the Unspoken Podcast, where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do. Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world. But sadly, we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it. So we would love for you to join us and listen along. And we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken. Make up fake love, make them all laugh. Someone, someone, take off your mask. It's nice to me. Today on the podcast, we welcome Shannon Sedgwick Davis. Shannon is the CEO of the Bridgeway Foundation, a philanthropic organization dedicated to stopping mass atrocities and an award winning advocate for social justice and international human rights. Most recently, she is the author of To Stop a Warlord, My Story of Justice, Grace, and the Fight for Peace. This book powerfully tells the story of Shannon's efforts to free Central Africa from the grip of violent rebel leader Joseph Kony and liberate his army of child soldiers. She previously served as the Vice President of the Geneva Global and Director of Public Affairs at the International Justice Mission. She is an advisory council member of the Elders the group of global statesmen founded by Nelson Mandela and a board member of several organizations, including Humanity United and Charity Water. Shannon is one of the most inspiring people I know. And if I think about her as a leader, she is the perfect picture of just grace and strength. She's a force. And I've wanted her story to be told for a long time. And this book has come out and just made waves. And when you get to know more about her work, I've been fortunate to travel the world with her some and see her in action. And it's one of the most unbelievable things I've ever got the opportunity to experience. So this was a beautiful time to sit down with her with this conversation. It's a huge privilege to hear from our friend who's walked through some unthinkable circumstances circumstances in pursuit of justice for unprotected people around the world. And we got to thank Parnassus Books in Nashville here for letting us use their beautiful space for a live recording. Welcome, Shannon Sedgwick Davis. I'm so excited to be here oh, with these two gems who I love more than anything. It's a vulnerable thing to have a conversation about a vulnerable topic and a, vul and a podcast that's got a reputation for being vulnerable. And I happen to be a dear friend of yours. And so I, when we first saw each other, it was almost like you've made it through your press tour so far without tears. And I almost got emotional just when I saw you. <laughs> Because we've, we've traveled the world some, and I've gotten to know the heart behind this, this uh, human to my left. And um, you're 
incredibly special, and I want them to get to know you, so I'm not going to uh, boast too much uh, because I want them to make their mind up. But to stop a warlord is part of what we're going to be talking about tonight. And one of the most profound and one of maybe one of the hardest stories I've had to, I've wanted to read and learn about. I've heard this story. I've been to some of the places, uh, but when I read it, it set in at a whole nother level. And I had to read a lot of things over and over again uh, because one, it was, it was tough to digest. It was almost hard to believe some of what you experienced, some of what you saw, and I'm just reading words on a page. I didn't experience it firsthand. But once you get through part of the story and the challenges and the success that came with it, there are so many beautiful truths that woke up in me. That's the impact you have, and we're going to get there. But you talk to people like me and hundreds of others, and that's the impact she'll have on you when you read that book and learn more about you. Is there are people, this is spreading uh, like a web, and it's touching more people than you'll ever know who are inspired by what you did and who are going out and trying to make the world better uh, because of, of the success you've had and the life you've lived. So, I'm so touched by your bravery and your courage, and I'm so excited for the audience to get to learn. Let, let's kind of back up. And let's learn a little bit about where you've come from, because I, I know that you were, um, you're a lawyer and you worked for International Justice Mission, but how did you get to that point where you were so drawn to wanting to serve in that sort of capacity? How did you get there? Yes, you know, I think it just goes back to really um, having incredible parents who just curated this idea that um, I should really listen to whatever makes my heart beat fast. I think my dad maybe later regretted that um, when I was headed off to Congo and some of these other regions. But um, for me, that it's always been this idea of justice. And um, I've been so fortunate uh, in, in being able to do that work. And what you find, I think, whenever you really concede your heart and your soul over to precisely what it is that you're created to do in the world or what it is that makes your heart beat fast. I think you find that you there's this grand invitation waiting. And if you don't say no, and if you keep saying yes, um, you really end up in the depths of that and of that passion and that calling. And um, I'm just so grateful that um, that... that that happened through this journey with me. And like you said, I did. I ended up going to law school mainly because everyone said, gosh, Shannon, you should go to law school. That must mean I argued with everyone in high school and college. Um, and did, got, got great training, but lasted 10 months at the law firm. There was an insurance defense firm, which is great. Shout out to all of my friends um, still doing that work, but um, it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. And so I uh, left there and... Um, sort of sold my big Texas SUV and moved to Washington, D.C. to work for International Justice Mission. And uh, that, was, that was a really challenging season. That was the season where um, we did work in, in human trafficking. We did work in child sex slavery. I mean, it was, I saw some really hard things in a short amount of time and about four years with them. Um, but it was an incredible time and just being mentored by those who had founded the organization and learning from them, I, I think, set up a lot of what ended up unfolding during this mission uh, that I speak about in the book. It's so beautiful, the work that you're doing. And I, I was learning about Bridgeway and good gracious, would you tell the audience about Bridgeway and how this all came about? Yeah, so I get to work for this incredible for-profit company. It's a money management mutual funds company, and they've chosen to give half their profits away to stop genocide and mass atrocity on the globe. Wow. Which is just crazy. Crazy. Um, <laughs> good crazy. Um, and so we have a mission statement that, um, that states that directly right there on the website, and that has sort of been this North Star for us and the company. And I have this extraordinary privilege of getting to head up the foundation side of that. So I get all the fun of trying to figure out how we're going to go spend those profits that are generated. And we came across multiple mass atrocities, unfortunately, um, when you're 
when your mission statement is end mass atrocity or genocide on the globe, that's a pretty audacious mission statement, especially in, in today's times. And uh, we were funding in 50 countries at any given time and funding hundreds of grants at any given time and really started to, to look at ourselves and our mission statement and say, gosh, are we really stopping genocide and mass atrocity like our mission statement says? Or are we trying to do advocacy to try to, to get others to intervene? Or are we sort of coming on the back end and rebuilding the school after someone burns it down? Um, more like putting Band-Aids on bullet holes, if you will, right? And um, we just had a rude awakening. Uh, we were funding in the LRA space, which this book talks about the Lord's Resistance Army and uh, Joseph Coney, who's the leader of that group. And we had done some funding in and around that issue. And there were, in 2008, there were Christmas massacres in which over 700 people were killed. And uh, we really had to just look at ourselves and look at our mission statement and say, we either need to change our mission statement to be more accurate, or we need to actually try and do what we say we're going to do. And that led to the story that unfolds in the book. Connect the dots for us a little bit in that there's a lot of us that maybe uh, volunteer or have worked in nonprofit space. And I see some people here that have been a part of NGOs that you see things that you hope to be able to benefit or maybe try to solve a problem. How did you go from what you just described, funding and trying to help do these things, to uh, actually deciding one day, I'm going to actually take on Joseph Coney? the guy that started the Lord's Resistance Army that's killing all these innocent kids, killing and raping, by the way. And kidnapping. Horrible story. Do you guys know the story? Okay. If not, you'll hear more about it. But how did you go from how do we rescue one kid at a time to how do we stop this? You know, it really is all about relationship. And we had this ability to be present in these areas where this was going on and had really gotten to know the people being affected by this. And you get this. Once you're in relationship with someone, once you're in community with someone, um, there's not a lot that you wouldn't contemplate doing uh, to try to help them if they're in need. Um, and we were just so privileged to be on the ground and we learned so much from those who were facing this extraordinary suffering. By the way, they have all the answers, right? I mean, let's be really clear that the solutions um, are all sort of within their, uh, their understanding because they've been facing this for so long. I mean, the LRA is, is still to this day Africa's longest running war. I mean, it's decades of this. And, um, and they've been incredibly resilient and resourceful um, about ways to solve for this problem. And so we just had this privilege and ultimately got invited uh, to participate in a, in a small way alongside um, these individuals uh, in terms of the solutions that they already had in mind and, and become a part of it. Um, but it wasn't without angst, right? Let's be real. So um, it was crazy. It was, it was I, would, I kept telling myself, of course we have to do more. And more meant... Um, some pretty audacious interventions in the philanthropic space. More meant something that I couldn't find a playbook for. More meant something that I couldn't see another example of when someone else had tried it. So it meant a lot of professional uh, risk. Um, we had to look at legal risks. Um, and just this overwhelming concern that we could do more harm than good, which is, should be like front and center whenever you're doing work in an area that's outside of your neighborhood. And that, that haunted us. Um, it, didn't, it didn't ultimately prevent us from doing this work, but um, it, certainly, it certainly did haunt us. And, and truthfully, I, I probably didn't sleep through the night until um, we had pulled sort of our last resources out. And so you, having seen all that and filling some of the gaps for, for all of us, I, I've, I know it from the book, but I want to hear like, because we've all, not we, a lot of us have traveled and seen parts of things that you're, you're talking about. And just people who've experienced incredible adversity and difficulties 
and we may go uh, and set up these little makeshift medical clinics or all the different various, uh, and I've been a part of a lot of those and they're powerful, but I've often left thinking, did we really make a difference? We helped these people for a week and then we came back home, but did we really solve a problem? And what I was so drawn to in this book is somehow you said, we've got to think bigger. And despite every obstacle, which I think you ran into every obstacle, somehow you put together a strategy and honestly, when I first met you and got to know you as Shannon, not as the leader of this incredible um, operation that uh, saved thousands of lives, which people are going to hear about, when I heard that part, I expected somebody different. I was like, where's your uniform? I was blown away. I mean, this woman led an effort in a private military and took down one of the biggest mass atrocities of our time. And pretty much stopped it in its tracks. Now it's still going on and we'll get into that too, but I know we don't have time to go through all of that, but just some of the things that, that kept you going when you ran into, this is impossible. There's no way we can do this. So why don't we get back in what we know in our safe zone and try to do this. And somehow you kept going. For all of us that have ever been frustrated with the areas in which we've tried to help, how could you help us continue to move forward, look at things differently and keep going? What was driving you? I mean, it was just all these incredibly heroic people that uh, lived and were sort of leading these interventions in the midst of what was going on. I mean, something that I can't even begin to conceive. I mean, I live in Texas in a safe neighborhood that's gated. I put an alarm on at night. I mean, come on to protect my two boys. And we've, you've got mothers out there during this time at the height of when uh, these children were just being kidnapped. And it, it, there was like a 50-50 chance at certain nights that these moms were going to lose their kids. And they would go and hide their kids under leaves. Their kids would make their way into cities to hide. I mean, just the idea that... Um, so incredibly heroic, so extraordinary, and they had so many of the answers. And so it was just a matter of us continuing to choose to be present. I, I mean, I, I think that's really how, how we did get past it. I mean, it was just continuing to choose to be present and listening, deep, deep, deep listening. Um, I'm just, I'm a better human because of these extraordinary heroes that I've gotten to spend some of the last decade with. I think what I was so struck by with you and the story is you saw, well, one, you're in community. There's no such thing as other people's children. And we're all so connected. And because you were walking alongside of these mothers and these children, I mean, it's, it affects everyone. It, this is, it's us, not me, not y'all, it's we, you know? And so I, I think what is so deeply touching is it's so easy to live in my own little world and to not look outside and see what's going on around me and not try to step in. This is like a massive scale of showing me like I can step in for my neighbor when I see that there's a need it just made me want to put a mirror on myself and be like, wow, how many times have I like just turned the other way to just take care of me? Like, thank you for giving me that mirror to remind me that this is for all of us to step into that courageous space and like see the pain that's happening in this world. And we can do little in those in-between moments. There's so many ways. It's just, I don't know. I'm just so appreciative of the mirror you gave me. There is fierce power when we come together yes. as humanity. I mean, I can't, I, I just, I just want to take every one of you right here in this room. And I want you just to, I just want to just transport you to some of what I was allowed to even bear witness to because it is fiercely powerful, this idea of just standing shoulder to shoulder with one another. And by the way, like, let me just be very clear that I got so much more from this experience than I ever could have given. And, and that's the beauty, right? When, when everyone is sort of pointed towards this North Star that's pure and that's about each other and... Um, and that focuses on our mutual humanity, which you were just talking about. Um, 
we just get to live a deeper and I think more meaningful life. And so um, it was an extraordinary privilege to meet these people. Um, well, t tell us a little bit, and then I want to get to more of the impact and get to know you a little bit more uh, as far as who you are beyond what you've done. We're going to go there. But before that, I really want them to hear and get hooked in the way that I did about how in the world did you get from point A to point B? How long were you there? Um, and I, I want, there's no way they're not going to get what I got from reading this book, even if we give them some of the highlights. And so I want them to hear some of the highlights of how long were you there, the strategy. It was brilliant what yes. you guys came up with and what you did. But could you give us some of that just through your lens and experience? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, the 2008 uh, Christmas massacres came, and we really took a hard look at ourselves and our intervention and decided to put at least more grants in and around this LRA space. Uh, and then 2009, Christmas came and went, and we celebrated. We, we thought, oh my goodness, there's not, there wasn't another Christmas massacre. Perhaps these additional grants that we've deployed uh, perhaps helped in that, or, or maybe it was just rumored that there'd be another one. And in March of 2010, I flew to Congo um, in the same hotel that we were at when we were over in DRC and sat uh, talking to one of the researchers whose work we supported from Human Rights Watch. And she looked across the table at me and, sh and she said, Shannon, there, there was a Christmas massacre and I'm only just back from the region and uncovered that over 300 people were killed hundreds kidnapped. Um, and so this idea that there had been another Christmas massacre and that the world was not finding out about it till three months later, that hundreds of people would drop off the face of the earth in days and the world finds out about it three months later. And so that was kind of the final power. So when you talk about just what, what ultimately sort of led us to make this decision, it was, we decided we actually just had to do more. And we'd been there and been on the ground for a long time. And so we had been hearing about these two gaps that existed in the mission. Uh, we kept hearing communications because a lot of these attacks, almost all of them were happening in an area where there were no, there was obviously no cell phone coverage and a lot of times not even HF radio coverage, any ability for each community to speak to itself. So a lot of times the LRA would come and attack a community and then they just travel 20 more kilometers and attack the next community. And those communities were not even able to warn each other, right? And so um, that one was like, okay, we can do this. You know, we can provide communications. That, that seems like a no-brainer and seems like it's a fit with a foundation exercise. And in our particular instance, we were so fortunate because there was this incredible man named Father Abe Benoit who had already set up a radio network um, and was working to, um, to create a bigger network. And so we were able to just really come in and just help scale that network a little quicker. Um, they would have these uh, antennas that they'd put up on bamboo poles and, and throw them up and be able to communicate with each other um, with these, these high-frequency radios. And um, just extraordinary individuals um, who, uh, you know, helped me on my team that would go and just find every HF radio set they could, right? And in Congo, it's, you know, that, that can be a little unpredictable. Um, several of the sets that were purchased were pu purchased in a shoe store in Congo. And so they found out that they had some HF radio sets in the back and uh, went and said, oh, we'll take all of them. Um, and so uh, Abe Benoit... Um, is no longer with us. Uh, he passed away about three years ago. Um, but I will tell you that um, he has left a legacy across that region. So even now that the LRA is not in several of those areas, uh, those HF radios still exist. And um, there's over 100 now. And they're able to communicate. And it's been an incredible resource and a gift that this man gave to the region. Second gap we were seeing was a tough one. It was training. And it was this idea that uh, the Ugandan military was saying, we actually, this, Joseph Kony has gotten very strategic in terms of how they're operating the LRA. And they've broken into these small groups. It's an asymmetrical conflict. And essentially, we, um, we need some specialized training in this precise kind of conflict, because the conflict flipped on them. It changed. Um, it originally was just in northern Uganda. And then 
ultimately sort of spread into these other countries and became, uh, became a much different conflict. And so we entertain that. And then when you say how, um, yeah, you don't, it's not like you just open the phone book and go, military trainers, check. <laughs> I mean, or there wasn't military trainers in my phone book. Um, so uh, we, we drew up a short list. I had some incredibly smart people that um, were partners on this mission and helped us think about some possible candidates. And we started to have those conversations. The whole time, by the way, I was like, there's no way I'm doing this, but I'll go ahead and have the conversations. Totally did not think that there was any way we were really um, going to do it. Because I felt like I was going to hit a wall at some point. You know, I, I was like, where's the roadblock? Like, it's got to be, like, right around the next corner. Oh, no, the lawyer just said, check. So it's not around that corner. So, oh, it must be around the next corner. And uh, we just never, we never hit one. And so we did. We, um, I met a, um, a man who uh, we ended up hiring um, him and his team to uh, be a part of this mission and to help train a special forces unit within the Ugandan military uh, to try to bring an end to this conflict. Hey, it's Miles, and I want to take a quick minute to tell you about our friends at Nisolo. They are the sponsors of this week's episode, and they are a sustainable shoe and accessory brand that is committed to intentional design, ethical manufacturing, and fair pricing. Each Nisolo purchase provides a living wage and helps to combat climate change. Nisolo actually owns and operates its own sustainable factory in Peru, and they're offsetting their production's carbon emissions by protecting trees from deforestation in the nearby Peruvian Amazon. In 2018, a alone, Nisolo customers have helped save more than 54,000 trees from being uprooted through their purchases. That's like the size of 62 baseball fields. It's really unreal. We have known Nisolo for years. Ruthie actually introduced me to this brand and now I'm a loyal customer and I love their shoes as does my wife and family. We had the pleasure recently of interviewing Patrick Woodyard, Nisolo founder and CEO at their headquarters in Nashville. And I got to tell you, my respect for this brand and their mission went up exponentially after hearing more more about the heart behind this effort. You can listen to our conversation with him on the season two bonus episode to learn more about Nisolo products and ethos, or you can try them out for yourself because Nisolo is offering unspoken listeners 25% off their purchase at nisolo.com when you use code unspoken at checkout. That's N-I-S-O-L-O.com and enter unspoken at checkout for 25% off your purchase of ethically made shoes and bags. I really want them to hear, and I want to jump ahead. I want them to hear some of the brilliant strategy that you use to actually uh, invite some of the change. It was so unorthodox and so different because when you hear special forces and ops and military, you think, let's bring violence to stop the violence. And somehow this was different. What was different? No, it was, it was different in so many ways. Um, you know, sometimes it was basic. Um, it was basic skills, right? Just learning how to uh, swim or be able to cross rivers. By the way, there's nothing basic about it. I mean, there's hippos and gators <laughs> on one side of the river, and the other side of the river are these horrible reeds that will just spear you like a knife, right, if you were to, to sort of make your way into them. So, um, but it was, it was that kind of training. And then, um, again, it was just this exercise of deep listening to those who had been engaged in this for decades. Um, one of the extraordinary opportunities that came our way uh, was with regards to defections. So the Ugandan government uh, just had this tremendous ability to say, this is a conflict that started here. Most of these fighters fighting in this conflict were kidnapped as children and are now 32 senior commanders in the LRA, right? Kidnapped at 12, now they're 32 and they're senior commanders in this group. And the Ugandan government was able to understand both intellectually and with grace that they needed to offer amnesty to those who would choose to walk out. And that most of those people never intended to be there, nor did they want to be there. 
And so that was just this incredible strategic advantage for our work in a way that we would have never anticipated. Um, and so there, was, there were these ideas floating around how to sort of convince these individuals, especially since they were now in segregated groups and not all stuck in one main group with Coney, to just walk out just these different leaders to actually walk out. And so that took several forms. Um, Laren Poole, who's on my team, and, and you'll read about in the book, uh, you know, even Drew, uh, for those who couldn't read, Drew, um, how to surrender, how to walk out um, graphics on pieces of paper that we laminated and dropped over large portions of the jungle. Um, again, we're operating over multiple countries in about a 90,000 square kilometer radius, so a vast area. And a lot of times with triple canopy jungles, so just very difficult um, terrain, extremely difficult terrain. And then um, he'd always said, oh, the only thing we're missing is a helicopter. And I was like, we're not getting a helicopter. I mean, who gets a helicopter? Like, you don't get a helicopter if you're in philanthropy. And sure enough, we got a helicopter. <laughs> and um, we put these huge speakers on the helicopter, these sort of, like, think rock concert-sized speakers. And uh, there was this extraordinary individual, David, whose story you'll have an opportunity to read in the book, who was kidnapped himself by the LRA, lost his father to the LRA. A very challenging story. Just encourage you to uh, stick with it um, because David's incredible and we have so much to learn from David. So stick with the hard parts of his story because there's yes. so much beauty um, if you can. And so David would go and he'd say, oh look, so here's a region that we think that Sam Opio might be operating or, you know, a, a different person and, and say, gosh, you know, he's now 26. He was kidnapped when he was 10, 16 years ago. Let's go, I'll go back to his village in Uganda and see if I can find any remaining uh, survivors. Maybe his mom is still alive. Maybe his aunt, brother or sister. And David would take his iPhone and record messages from family members, um, Dwag Pacho, this means uh, come home, my son. I've never stopped waiting for you. Oh. <laughs> and um, oh, so powerful. Yes. Um, and then plug the, the cell phone into the speakers and just hover over a region. Um, and I mean, over the history of the mission, 730 came out. I mean, that is one of the most beautiful. It's it's turning justice, forgiveness up on its head. I would love for you to tell them what David helped set up for these men when they came home. Because that is the most beautiful picture of communal carrying the burden and the weight of anything I've ever heard. And I, I have more comments on it, but I would love for you to tell them about these ceremonies because it's just the most touching, beautiful thing I think I've ever heard. So in this region where the majority of these uh, LRA um, victims and uh, combatants are from, there's a culture, this Acholi culture, David's an Acholi. And there's a culture around ceremony that happens when uh, these individuals would return. So the community uh, was willing to choose peace and no longer war, and oftentimes embrace someone who had been very violent to their community or who had become part of this violent group. And uh, there's a ceremony that happens, and David usually, David drives a, um, a white SUV that he calls the tank, and it is aptly named, because he's often just blazing roads to these villages to find these individuals. Because when they come out, then you get to take them home. I mean, oh. So I mean, David's literally like helping to get them back home. And when they get to the villages, there's always a massive celebration where people just come out and they're uh, hollering and celebrating. And, and then there's a ceremony. And uh, a couple things happen in that ceremony. And their tradition, uh, they place an egg. So um, 
David might place an egg on the ground and uh, let's say Sam Opio, who's just returned, is on one side of that egg and perhaps his mother is on the other side. And there's an idea that they would sit around and drink um, what they call the bitter root. And the value in that is that we've all experienced pain from this circumstance. And so as a community, we're going to all take in the pain collectively. And then Sam Opio would step on the egg. And the idea there is that the egg, the external part of the egg can get dirty and um, is exposed to the elements. Um, but what is in the inside of the egg is fresh and new. And so it's a symbol of just renewal. And, uh, and then would reach over and embrace his mother for the first time. I have to say that I have learned so much from these wonderful friends about justice yes. and about grace and forgiveness. But especially as a lawyer, um, we, have this, we have this idea of justice here, or at least my view is that we have this idea of justice here in the United States that really is around retributive justice. And uh, that's what I was certainly trained on for three years in law school. And I don't see that kind of justice there. Yeah, it's one where you know you're going to pay, you are going to be penalized, and um, and then it still doesn't even usually have any sort of reconciliation on the back end. But once you've paid, uh, then then you can sort of you might be free to sort of move on with your life. Um, What the Ugandans have figured out is this idea of restorative justice. Oh my gosh, and we are so missing that opportunity here because it's sort of the, it is our shared humanity, right? I mean, just the idea that, that there would be a form of justice in which we can actually restore one another. And um, it, it was just, I, God, what a privilege it's been to learn from them. <laughs> I just can't handle it. It's so beautiful. It's sacred. Yes. I mean, God, we almost didn't write this book. I mean, it just it was it just felt too sacred for paper. Um, but then it felt too sacred not to share. So, um, but it it is it's sacred. I remember when you were trying to decide should I put this story out there. How do I put this story out there? Because it's complicated. There's a lot of stuff you had to conceal, and there were just a lot of things where people could be harmed if their true identity was revealed. And uh, I, I remember we were having conversations about it and you're, you would just slowly drop these things in about, uh, well, the first one was, uh, I was I was working on a project on forgiveness and a publisher talked to me about a book on forgiveness and we were talking about it. Actually, we were hiking through the jungle going to see, what were we doing? We were- Sorry for that. Wow. <laughs> I, I talked Miles into, and Bob Goff, I was so mean of me. I talked y'all into like hiking in to go see the Silverback Gorillas. Oh, yep. And I promised you it'd be like six hours total, which it totally is six hours six total times normally. Two, 12. It was 12 hours. <laughs> we were in not a too safe of a place. And I was so bummed. They were like smiling into way better shape than me. Like Bob Goff's like. <laughs> stromping through and like hurtling and I was dying. I was so mad. The phone wouldn't work so that I could get like a signal and I don't know what I would have done if I had gotten a signal. Like what's going to happen? Like just call God to just beam me up or something. I I don't even know what would have happened if I had. So then I just turn on like Rolling Stones or something super loud on my phone and there were like literally rebel groups around us. But I was like, I don't care if they like come at this point. Like I am going to play music because it's the only way I can take another step. So I love that you forgot that part of the story. Well, I, we took on so many treks and now I remember because it was special once we actually found the silverbacks. Beautiful. Some of the last remaining ones in the wild, but it was a kick-ass Maybe trip. Maybe not 12 hours. Beautiful. I'm not sure about but we that. Had so many from getting attacked by ants to the whole thing. We had all. Yeah, these- there's these safari ants that if you take us, you have to step over because there's not a trail. You're like leaping over like whatever wood has fallen here. And as you're leaping, like 20 safari ants will get on you. And you basically just all of us would strip down every like 
hour when we would get safari ants on because you have to take all your clothes off to get them. I mean, it was just pretty much we were got to know each other quickly. Trust tree, <laughs> trust tree. But it was uh, it's uh, really gone different direction than <laughs> where you were at it. Sorry. So please do bring us back. We, we uh, I'll I'll do my best. We had so much fun, but I we had some deep conversations on that trip and on that trek specifically. It's some of the painful stories that are in here, particularly about David, what a hero he was, and some of what he survived and went through is almost too much to even say here. But I want you all to read it. Um, but when you decided to tell this story, I was first of all, excited, because I would tell people. I was like, I've got this friend, and let me tell you what she was a part of leading. And I would have people in tears by telling them the 20-minute version, because I was in tears almost every time I would tell it initially, because it's almost unthinkable what you accomplished, and yet nobody really knew. But yet she would, well, I say nobody knew. Um, we were So we were on this particular trip talking about the forgiveness project, and she said, well, who do you like you know, that talks about forgiveness? And I said, well, my hero is Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm on the advisory board of the elders. I know Archbishop. Would you like to meet him? And I just about <laughs> fell out. And, Casual. Yeah. And she, she doesn't do that. It's very rare to get – well, all you got to do is read the back of the book from President Jimmy Carter to Archbishop to Richard Branson. I mean, out to the Dalai Lama. To, it goes on and on and on. The people that you don't tout the relationship – they tout you because they respect your leadership and your work. Yes. And yes. that is unbelievable. And there are people that would die for those endorsements, and you didn't work for them. You worked at something and earned them. These people saw you. They showed up for you, and they said, this woman has a story to tell. It's an important one. And I'm so grateful that you decided to tell it. And there's one passage I wanted to read. You okay with that? It was in chapter 54, and... It says, I always thought that the goodness in the world would awaken me to my highest spiritual self, but it's evil that has taught me the most, that has brought me to advocate for innocence so fiercely. It isn't comfortable, it's an unsavory concession to give so much credit to the power of evil, but it brought me and many others to see our human interconnectedness more clearly and to take action that didn't seem possible. If the mission has taught me anything, it's that we can't eradicate the shadows but we can hold our share of the night. For those of us whose lives have been largely protected from horrors, for those of us who have been fortunate to grow up in peace instead of war, we have a responsibility to share in our efforts to end human suffering, to stand together, to live in service of others' lives, to find our own way to make a difference. And I want to read the second part, too, just because it's Archbishop and I love him. But uh, this is something that you said he taught you, uh, which is uh, Ubuntu, which is I am because we are. I am a product of the people who surround me. For a while, we thought that one man's capture was the only version of peace and justice. Talking about Joseph Coney. I learned that peace is bigger than the fate of one man. It is the 90% reduction in LRA killings since 2011. When our mission began, the effort to tilt the balance in favor of life and peace is embracing our shared humanity. That's one paragraph. <laughs> yes. When you hear that, the words that, that you wrote, the words that you lived, describe the emotion. It's, it's just sacred, and it's, I, I think I said earlier just a minute ago to you guys before we, we started this um, that I still have a tough time reading the book myself. I went to read it so many times because we wanted to catch all the typos and things, and it was really, um, it was really difficult, um, and it's very difficult to read it without this sort of lens looking for specifics, but actually read it as it unfolded, because um, it was extraordinary what we witnessed and the power of these incredible beings. David, David's extraordinary power, Abbe Benoit's extraordinary power, there's so many to name. And they all just come rushing back um, when I look at the words on the pages, and it's just still, it's still sacred. And um, it's, still a, it's still a journey for me, too. So you, you chose to kind of flip to the back of the book and read those parts. And, and that was the hardest part of the book to write because I didn't, 
I, I didn't have like a conclusion to give because um, there isn't a conclusion. I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it's really bad what's happening in, in a lot of places in our world today. But there is this extraordinary goodness, right? And so if you're willing to engage at the heart of the brokenness, um, you also get to see this sort of the pinnacle of goodness. And, um, and we just, we're, we're all, all of us in this room, we're still sitting in that place today. I would love to know, so you go, you experience all this, you see all this, what was it like for you to come home? Two small boys, hus- I mean, a life in Texas in the sub. Like, what does that look like? How do you step back in into that role, that human role of being mommy, wife, friend, daughter? Like, wh- what does that look like? You know, sometimes I did it really bad. Like, there were times that I would come back, right? And, you know, I would be out, we'd be out in these these forward operation bases in the middle of Central African Republic jungle that obviously we didn't have any cell phone service and we didn't have any internet or anything like that. And it would be, it would be astounding to me sometimes because I'd come back and I'd be two days into being home and I'd be super mad that my internet was slow or something. And it'd be like, what is going on? So there were times that I didn't, that I didn't do that well, right? That, that, that it wasn't as fluid. And I realized that this is a this is a marathon. Our lives are a marathon. And this idea, I mean, obviously there's times where we'll sprint, but this idea that I was going to try to silo off my work from my life, from my boys, it just wasn't, it was not gonna happen. Like that, that involves such an internal struggle. Um, I was almost at war with myself in doing that. And by the way, like we should be living, whether it be at work, whether it be while we're taking a walk on the street, whether it be with our children or in the carpool line, um, I think our lives can always be extensions of our passions. And so that's where we really had to figure out a system. And how do, how do you do that? How do you integrate that? Especially when the worlds are as, as vastly separated as these two worlds seem to be, at least on the surface. And it looked like being honest with my boys, um, being age appropriate, honest, but being probably more honest than I had thought that I would be initially. Um, you know, when Connor was young and I went off for those several weeks during the training, you know, he's like, oh, are you going back to Africa to see the zebras? And it's like, oh gosh, no, honey, zebras would not keep taking me away from you. Um, and so we talked about this idea of what was happening over there and talked very generally. And now my son is 13, my oldest, and he just read the book. And my boys have gotten to know David. And um, we're going to be at David's wedding in Uganda in December. So excited. And then the boys came with me. I mean, a couple years in, um, my husband Sam and the boys decided to come for the summer and um, we didn't stay in the region where this was going on, but stayed close by. We stayed in, in Kigali, Rwanda, which was a neighboring country. And uh, that was a huge opportunity to sort of have that, that bridge to the worlds. But um, no, it, it never, it never got, there never was a time where setting the alarm didn't feel absurd when I would get home. Uh, there never was a time where, you know, where, so if you, if you open your heart to a category, I think, of suffering or mass atrocity, you're really opening your heart to all categories of it to some extent, right? So that was the other trouble is sort of what would happen back home and sort of times of grief uh, that happened back home. We lost Sam's mom uh, during the mission to cancer prematurely. And um, this, this idea of, of how how we embraced suffering, I think, was different and informed by this as well. And I've, that, that was, I'm glad you brought that up. That was what I wanted to share too, is I, when I got into my space, and it feels um, veil in comparison to what you took on, but I'm trying to take on some things that I'm passionate about in the mental health space and the addiction space and places where I've worked. And it seems overwhelming to tackle such a big, thing and I often looked at it and I looked at the people who were mentoring me and who I respected and who'd been in the field for 20 30 years longer than me and 
I looked at their, their work and I was like, whoa, I want to accomplish what they accomplished. That seems amazing. I looked at their life and I thought, whoa, I don't want that. They were on their third marriage and they're estranged from their kids. And just, it's a general, not everybody, but it's a general. I just saw that, that sometimes giving back comes at a significant cost. And I watched you uh, be fiercely loyal in the field. If I ever want to travel anywhere, I want to go with you, especially anywhere dangerous, because she is a boss and a badass in the field. Um, but then I watch you, I've met your family, you've stayed at our house, I've watched the way you are with your boys and in your house. It's just amazing that you treat every area of your life in a fiercely loyal, protective, loving, kind way. And how, do, how, do you, how have you found that balance? Has that been tough to strike a balance? And as you think about all the things that you probably have your eye on going forward, which I know a lot you can't talk about, um, some you've shared, they seem as big as what you took on here. And I know your family's so important to you, so. Yeah, no, really the balance um, became so much easier when I gave up this idea that, um, that we had to segregate this part of our life and that it couldn't just all be congruent. And, and people might, sort of on the outside, might go ahead and silo it off for you, but you don't have to accept that. Um, so definitely some of, you know, the fellow moms at Connor School were definitely like putting some silos up, but I don't have to accept right. their silos on me. And I can still be room mom if I want. I can do it. I can be room mom and go do this work. But I think it's, no, I think that those, those boundaries became easier. Um, and my hope is that, and I've struggled with parenting the most, right? Like if we're being super vulnerable, which... I'm always super vulnerable with you too because you guys are like the vulnerability invokers. Um, bad mix for a podcast for me. Um, no, but uh, honestly, right, the hardest, actually the, the single hardest thing in my personal life was this idea of being a mom that traveled a lot and that did things that um, people thought were probably putting me in harm's way. Though I, I would reject that or say it's extremely relative to um, those that we worked with. And so I took, I took some heat on that. And it's interesting because a lot of times I can take heat. And if I know it's not true, right, I can just sort of reject it and move forward. I think being a mother is so, it's such an incredibly vulnerable responsibility. And so you actually just are going to be a little insecure about it all the time, right? You're just going to look over at that next mom and be like, oh, she did the sanitizer. Maybe I should grab the sanitizer or, you know, just everything. Um, because you have these two, like, the human beings. Oh, I know. I just kissed your sweet baby on the head. Um, you have these two human beings that are in your custody and that are, you know, walking around. And, you know, it just, it's extremely vulnerable. And so... There's a part in the book I talk about where we went to church for Christmas service and one of our good friends from the community, and I, I know she didn't mean it, but just came up to me and um, made it really clear that I, um, that my responsibilities were at home and to those boys and that I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. And my response to that is, and this goes back to your boundaries question, is that I want those boys to be whoever they're created in all the world to be when they grow up. And I want them to follow the thing that uniquely makes their heart race. And the only way I know how to convince them to do that is to do it myself as it applies to me and uh, to model it for them. Yeah, I, uh, we do this a lot on our podcast and interviews, and I know it's about let us learn what you do and, and, and all those things, but we really love pouring into people because, especially people who we get a chance to interview because you pour out, you pour out, you pour out. And I, before we, we kind of wrap up, and I, there's things I can say. I said some in the beginning, and, and I've got a couple more thoughts, but there's somebody here who has no idea they're going to be part of this conversation and they may not, they may run out the door right now, but I would love, um, 
you mentioned Laren, but there's also another person here that's pretty important on your team. That was a big part of this operation. And Adam, would you come up just real quick? Yay. <laughs> you guys, Adam deserves a massive, like louder than we've been so far. When we talked about all that defection messaging and plugging the, the iPhones into the speakers, Adam's feet were hanging off the helicopter for hours at a time uh, getting those messages out and uh, has been an incredible part of this journey. And I can speak into you as a friend uh, and from what I've read in the book, but I would love if you'd be willing, um, as if there were nobody here, if you could think about that for a minute. Um, you've been, uh, I'm sure, a friend, um, you know, worked with, and she's led you, and what would what would you, if, if, we re, if you really wanted us to know the heart of this person and you could speak it directly into her, what, what's a message you would have for her? First of all, I almost ran out the back of the door. <laughs> I don't appreciate that, Miles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, no, Shannon is, you are uh, one of the most remarkable human beings that I know. And I feel it's, it's been such a privilege um, to work for you, to work for Bridgeway the last five years and it really is truly a remarkable organization like Shannon said there's no blueprint for some of the work uh, that we're doing and Shannon has enabled and really you know just encouraged us to pursue the things uh, that we love and I think watching uh, you as a leader has been it's been truly remarkable Shannon can walk into a room and convince anyone of almost anything uh, and the amazing thing is, is she's convincing them to go out and do incredible things in the world and to be willing to take risks and to be willing to fail um, for the greater mission. So I'm, I'm just grateful and honored you know, to know you. Thank you. Uh, such a special human. And I got he this. He is pure, y'all. <laughs> like light. And he's going on like two hours of sleep for the last six months because they've just had a new baby. He and his wife, Danielle, a precious baby who likes to be awake at night. So it's awesome. <laughs> and and, and your, one of your boys has already read this book. Um, if you think about this, you at about the age of where your boys are and knowing what you know now with the life that you've had underneath you or behind you, what's a message you would have for yourself at that age? What would you like her to know? I, two things that there should never be a fence around the human heart. Oh, yes. And that it's okay to be scared, but that we have incredible opportunity if we lean in and become fully present with the things that scare us, because that's where we're gonna find a lot of power. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I you. love you guys. Yeah, thank you for being a part of this. And um, guys, we just got a snapshot. This book yes. is it is smart. It is uh, touching, and it is you, you really need to read it. It's and when I first when I first read it and I already knew the story, it's a little overwhelming to think how could I make that kind of difference. I'm you know, live here, do my work. I'm going to get to travel internationally maybe a couple times a year if I'm lucky. And I'm, I'm, just what Reethi said and what you've inspired me to do, we all can do something with the person next door, with the person in front of us, with the person in our home. That's the part I think that we need champions like you to lead us that way. And it's exactly what you do just by being who you are. And there is a human behind this incredible skill set that you'll get to know in this book too as a mom. You shared a little bit about it. Um, but you're just extraordinary. And for you to take time to come to Nashville and share with all of our friends in our living room here in Parnassus is such a treat. Yes. So, Shannon Cedric Davis, everybody. Make up fake love, make them all laugh. Come on, someone, take off your mask. It's nice to me. Thank y'all so much for being with us today. We know your time is valuable, so it truly means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. 
And thank you for being willing and open to walk right into the tension of saying the unsaid. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot. And this song is called Alcatraz from their EP, Hallucinate. I cannot speak highly enough about these musicians and friends. Check out their beautiful music on Spotify and online. And a huge thank you to Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio who edit and mix the show. If you want to learn more about The Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and more information about The Kissed. And feel free to follow us on Instagram as well at The Unspoken Podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe to keep getting more inspiring conversations with incredible people delivered straight to you. And for those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We can't wait to share with you all of the upcoming conversations with some really special people. And we hope these fill you with the hope that we might all find connection, healing, courage, and the strength to leave no important words unspoken.